The Greenwood and Mulliner Show is proudly sponsored by Casa San Lorenzo Gosforth, the best Italian cuisine in the Northeast. Reserve a table today on 0191213 or visit casasanlorenzo.co.uk. Newcastle Fans TV. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Greenwood and Mulliner Show here on Newcastle Fans TV. The takeover has probably dominated most podcasts if you support Newcastle United in the last 12 to 18 to 24 months, let's be honest. But there was only one man, Sam Mulner, that can tell us the what, story. What, me? What did I do? <laughs> no, but there is one man that can tell us the story. And maybe one of the best sports lawyers in the business, isn't it? No, maybe about it. But uh, Nick DeMarco, KC, not QC anymore. Um, yeah. He joins us to talk all things sports, Lord, Newcastle United takeover a year on. Yeah, it's um, a real interesting one, this, and just to get to find out the intricacies behind it and how to phrase it, really, um, dealing with governing bodies. And yeah, it's um, it's really quite fascinating stuff, isn't it? It really, really is. And Nick is, like Sam says, the best in his field. And that's why Mike Ashley approached him and and he got it got it done. He did get it done. And Nick is, I think, universally liked in Newcastle. Now he does go into depth yeah. about why the Newcastle fans are a different breed, if you like, Sam, because as we mentioned, as you see the figures, 33,000 watching a cat case. Yeah. You don't get, you don't get that anywhere else, do you? No, you don't. And um, I have to be honest, I wasn't one of them. I'd, I'd all but given up hope by then. But, um, well, well, I've never been so delighted to be proved wrong in all my life. Oh, what a day. Um, it, it's one of them days, actually, the, the takeover day, where you'll remember where you were forever. And that ties in from the actual announcement day to all the way to Spurs at home, the first game post-takeover. Um yeah, it'll it'll stay with every Newcastle fan forever where they were. Um, the start of a new beginning and a new dawn, and yeah, it was um, it was largely part in thanks to our, our guest today. Yeah, it certainly was, and I think, like you say, you can remember when the, the news broke and the stories broke. And I was I was actually off work. I, I was on a sabbatical, so I was off oh. for the whole of October. And yeah, I don't great. know. I can't, Good for you, please for you. No, but I, no, but I can't remember. I can't remember. If I've told this story on the podcast. I was I was preparing to do some a, a charity walk at the end of October, so I was meeting a friend of mine to uh, arrange a stag do for one of for one of my friends. I said, "Oh, we should do it in town." I says, "Yeah, I'll do. I'll do it. I'm, I'm going to walk to town. So from my house to town is about seven and a half miles, and that was the Wednesday, the day before the takeover, and I was literally walking past Jasmine Dean." house if you like the day before there was probably people in there well yeah there would have been there would have been there would have been and i didn't obviously but like i've seen the building but you you don't like go into detail it's just like it's just passing but i always remember being with my friend when i get to when i get a car free after um and i said oh this is interesting i said oh no this is interesting he's not a newcastle fan and he says oh do you think it'll happen i said I think this could. I think this has got legs. That's all I said. I said I'm never going to say it's going to happen, but I think it's got legs. Um, but this it, it ties into what I was going to ask you, Sam. When Nick's involved in a case, his record is very, very good, isn't it? So gosh. ultimately, it gives you a lot of confidence, isn't it? It did. It did. Which is, from my own personal point of view, I, I ignored a lot of the bluster that was going on and and, and being reported, but because I was just personally i just wanted it to like just be told if it was going to happen when it was going to happen and that's eventually what happened wasn't it it was kind of done all finished out in the press within 36 hours um yeah so the the one saving grace throughout the whole case that we had someone an expert like nick demarco on on our side to get things done with the premier league yeah and he goes into detail about Dealing with the Premier League, dealing with Mike Ashley, dealing with Amanda Staley and Mia Dad Gaddusi. It's it's 
it's a really, really fascinating listen. So it's one not to be missed. But Well, they're not so, missing it. They're listening to it now. Do you know what it is? He's like this all the time when he's when he's like. I am like this all the time. Can yeah. you imagine? Can you imagine what I'm like to be around twenty four seven? Because I am well, like this all the time. You are very much like this all the time. Uh, it has been one year since the takeover has been completed. What is the the standout moment since then for you, Sam? Before the game against Tottenham. Uh, outside the ground where there was just joy everywhere just so much joy and we saw so many people who we hadn't met face to face only on computer screens like because obviously we were still coming out of covid sort of weren't we um but yeah it was it was just an absolutely joyous afternoon um and then that coincided with with the Arsenal game, isn't it? I, I wasn't there that night. I wasn't fortunate enough to be there. Um, you were, yes, I know. But, um, yeah, seeing them scenes on telly and it was just pinch yourself moments that um, you very rarely get, particularly in, in recent times. Yeah, it certainly is. I think the one standout moment for me... Watching is... me on Sky Sports News? Do you know I, I was live at the time, and I didn't. I didn't even. I can't remember if you told me you were going live on Sky. I think you might have done, but it was. I didn't realize you were going pretty to be on sure. I would have told you. Yeah, Sky Sports. Sam Mulner would have definitely said that he was going on Sky Sports, but I think it was more the fact that we you were going on so quick from the announcement. I think the announcement yeah. was caught past five. You were on by about twenty five to six or something, or half past five. It was really, really no. Quick. It was quicker than that. Really, mm, about twenty five. Do you know what I did? I did. I actually recorded that bit, so I've still got it in the house. But um, you really? I did. Yes, I did. Oh, wow. I, I think it's just. I think it was just the. Um, I think it was just the history. Euphoria, history, the euphoria of that moment, and again, I think that moment didn't hit me until I walked up to St James's. I, 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 I got a lift up to town, and I got dropped off about a three or four minute walk away from the ground, and it was still pretty quiet. But as soon as you hit the long road from the, like I say, maybe about 150 yards away from the strawberry, and you could just hear the noise and see the people arriving, that was that was the moment. But the, the one moment for me that stands out is the type of players that we I would see now see on a week to week basis, and that being Bruno Gimmerich. I think Newcastle United now have a caliber of player that probably is in line well, with those fans' expectations. Can we get these sort of players week in, week out? And then when you see him on the pitch, and I like that Arsenal game, Bruno was absolutely incredible. He's been, yeah. he's been incredible, and he's barely put a foot wrong since he's been at St. James's, hasn't he, Sam? And then the, like the third, like my third example would have been that Leicester game, which I was at. Um, I was front row of the Gallagher, where Bruno got that last minute, last second winner uh, right in front of me. Yeah. Um, who'd like ran his socks off all game and then still 96th minute making a long busting run to arrive late in the box to get on the end of a deflected Joe Willock cross. Um, yeah, amazing player. Seeing him um, getting Isak, who will who will come and uh, become a, a brilliant Premier League player for Newcastle United. I have no doubt in that whatsoever. Um, yeah. Long may it continue and uh, hope for even more better days. Let's see what this conversation is going to be like in 12 months' time when it's two years, the two-year anniversary of this takeover and see how we react. And we might have seen Newcastle do better than last season, which is not difficult in terms of being in a relegation battle for the majority of it. But hopefully this this time next year, Newcastle might be might be even in a stronger position. Could they be in the top seven, top, top eight? Who knows? Who knows? Be interesting to see. I'll tell you what we need to do. So we need to listen to Nick DeMarco, don't we? We need to listen to his opinions and views of what happened 12 months ago. So strap yourselves in, everyone. This is the Greenwood and Mulliner Show, and it is with Nick DeMarco Casey. The Greenwood and Mulliner Show on Newcastle Fans TV. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Greenman and Mulner Show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Me and Sam today are joined by one of the most respected sports lawyers in the business. 
And Nick has played a significant part in Newcastle United in the last 12 months with the recent takeover of the football club. And here to tell us all about it is Nick DeMarco Casey himself. Nick, welcome to the Greenwood and Molina Show. Thanks very much. I think that's the first time I've been on a show and introduced as a Casey, so I've got to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly will, certainly will. Uh, Sam, it, it yeah. is coming up to the anniversary that, of the first year since the takeover, and who better than to get the, the latest, or I, I say the latest, but the actual timeline of everything, than Nick? Yeah, so I want to know all about the timelines and things, but I'm going to start with the question that you would have realized that was coming anyway, but let's start with baking bread. <laughs> you, you broke Twitter on a number of occasions 12, around 12 months ago, Nick, with like Newcastle fans, as I'm sure you're aware now, are totally unique and will read into anything. And there's pictures of, of bread in, in a funny shade or there's a pic with a bottle of brown ale or... Did you have, was that kind of intentional at any point to, to give a clue about a takeover's coming and the issues being resolved? No, it wasn't intentional. Um, the, it, anyone who, who follows me now or did before will know I've got many interests outside sports law. Um, cooking is one, and I occasionally go into experimenting with bread baking in some obsessive way for a number of months and then it's something else that's just the way I do things and so I was doing that and posting results and now of course when you suddenly have far more interest in your photograph of your half-baked loaf than you might otherwise have that that perhaps generates you to do it some more than you might otherwise but I certainly wasn't trying to provide hints about the case because that that would be unprofessional and it wouldn't have helped Newcastle um, and uh, it, it wouldn't have helped anybody so that was not my intention but once you once you get into that sort of cycle of of madness if I could call it that because most of it was um, very funny and, and humoured uh, I didn't get too worried about it but once you get into that cycle I, I thought the only thing to do was to just carry on as normal and if that meant I was going to post a picture of a loaf I would um, and I wouldn't deny or admit to anything because once you do if you deny a post means something everyone says oh well it's all going really badly so <laughs> you, you, you can't win you just can't say anything about it and that's what I did. Newcastle fans and bread who would have thought it who would have thought it. <laughs> you, no um, you were just really trying to get the attention of the bake-off producers because you wanted them <laughs> in the British I would never be good enough to go on that show I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens with that but before we kind of talk all things Newcastle United I, I want to talk about is the book a book that you've got uh, releasing on uh, the 30th of September and it is of course the second edition of the football and the law and I think in particular Newcastle United fans I think will be interested about the part about challenges to the owners and the, the directors test um, it's had a lot of fantastic reviews to people that have already had the benefit of look, uh, reading the book but where did the idea come of getting a second edition out? And again, how happy are you that it's been well received so far? Um, well, I'm, I'm just remembered I have got a copy here. So this is the book. It's now finally in print. It's nice to have my hands on it. Um, it's been a lot of work. In fact, the idea originally came from a good friend of mine who's now the chairman of Nottingham Forest, uh, Nick Randall QC, Casey. Um, who I used to work with at the bar and we did a lot of football law together uh, before he gave up being at the bar and became chairman of Forest. Um, and that was the idea for the first edition. I took it over, did the first edition with a number of other people. It's the only, the first and only book to comprehensively cover all of the legal issues in football in the whole world. So therefore it has, we're lucky it has been received very well and used by a lot of people. We have reviews, for instance, by the head of legal at FIFA saying how he uses it. So all, all of the different sides and parties use it as a reference book. Um, and you would be amazed. You only need to look at the contents. You'd be amazed at the range of legal issues that arise in football. Anything from commercial disputes, the regulatory disputes you all know about, to personal injury tax insurance you know there are so many different ones and what we've managed to do with the book is draw together 
all of the experts in those different fields. So we have 66 authors, nearly all leading barristers, many from all over the world, most in England. Um, and so I hope it's a very useful resource to anyone on either side of any dispute to look up what the answer might be to that dispute. So that, that's the aim of the book. Uh, would you say, as well as it being ideal for like insiders in 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 the game, like you say, head of FIFA, um, is it for for want of a better phrase, good for football geeks as well, like myself and Johnny, who just like love the 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 kind of intricacies in, inside the business aspect and, and the law uh, practices inside the game? It, it's an interesting question um, because relates to the podcast I'm doing, but also I think of my friend Kieran Maguire's podcast and his book, you would think sort of expert accountancy discussions in the context of football would only be interesting to football administrators or accountants. But the number of fans who are interested in what Kieran's great work um, shows that there is a wider interest. And uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to oversell my book because I don't like to oversell anything. I wouldn't say this is a book for a fan to pick up and read. But if a fan's interested in a particular issue and wants to look it up, it's probably the first book to go to look up the answer to that question. It's more of that. It's like having an encyclopedia. It's more of a book to go and look up something rather than read cover to cover. Although if people want to read it cover to cover, please do. <laughs> You talk about the, the, the podcast, the sports and law podcast. Um, it's incredibly fascinating. I've I really, really enjoyed the last few episodes. And Thank you. why did you want to go into the podcast world? Why did you want to go into detail uh, about certain topics? Well, it was actually my clerk's idea um, when we had a, a, a chat at the beginning of the year. Um, because perhaps because I'm a sports lawyer or, or, or you know, just the way I am, I've got a, a bit of a higher profile on than than many other lawyers do and so I've I've always regularly posted articles or written books or given talks those are the conventional things that lawyers do about um, a legal topic and it was he who suggested to me well a podcast is a way to go now because people can listen to it whenever they like and they might be on the tube going home or whatever it is or they may be in Shanghai and in a sports lawyer and so they're not going to tune into a webinar at six o'clock English time and so I thought about it and I thought yeah it's a good idea but I've got to finish the book first but we started work on it this spring I think it was of, of this year um, and it's it's actually taken off far better than any of us expected the, I, the statistics I was told was that the first episode we did on um, what's it what, what does a football lawyer do where we had in-house lawyers from some of the, the clubs that that episode there were um so many downloads in the first week that put it within the top five percent of all podcasts download in the whole world on any yeah. subject which for a, a first and discreet legal subject is is uh, quite amazing but it, of course it's because so many people are interested in in football and sports law and the disputes in sports so it's um it's been fascinating to do and it's it's also been a lot more, you guys must know this, it's a lot more work to do than you think. I mean, I spend at least a day of my time preparing the content, preparing the questions, almost preparing a script, which you then don't follow. As with you guys, you sent me some ideas, but you're not following them. But, you know, it, it doesn't matter because you prepare someone. And but that so much must go into that preparation for the show to look good and for it to look natural um, and don't get paid for it, um, but it's it's great exposure. It's very interesting, and and it's gone well so far. I hope it continues to do so. I'm sure it will because it is a fantastic listen. But um, where did the love of football and, and sport, but football in general, um, come from? Because for people who don't know, you're a lifelong QPR fan. Yes, like well, I think being part Italian helps because it's in your blood to love football, and it also means that you in my lifetime anyway, have had a slightly better experience watching World Cups than England fans have had. Um, but when I was, when I was, you know, 10 or 11, my dad took me to my first football match and that was Brentford because that was one of the local clubs. Brentford at home to Carlisle in what was probably the old third division in those days on a snowy 
New Year's Day, I think it was. And it was nil-nil and not a very good ground, a terrible match and very cold. And, you know, I didn't have a love of that. But a few months later, uh, a mate at school, his dad, took me to QPR, which were the other local team. And they were at home to Liverpool in the old first division. And it was the days when we had Stan Bowles, Jerry Francis, who was England captain, Phil Parks in goal. We had a great squad, um, late 70s. And I don't think we won that match, but we played fantastically. It was a great match, wonderful skill. And I was hooked from then. It's, it's almost been downhill since then. But nevertheless, once you're hooked, you're hooked. Very much so, very much so. But I think the one common thing with QPR and Newcastle is the love of Sir Les Ferdinand, Nick. I can Absolutely. imagine you would, I can imagine you've seen some fantastic goals from Sir Les over the years, but has there was there one standout moment from Sir Les in his QPR days? Well, you know what? Um, I actually, uh, I, I like Sir Les a lot, uh, as we all call him Sir Les. <laughs> one day he should be. Um, but what stands out most for me about him is his current role, um, because not only is he, um, and I see him a lot when I go to QPR, but not only is he, um, uh, I think, a very good sporting director, but he's been one of the first, uh, and very vocal about it, um, directors in the boardroom in football from a, from a BAME, black and ethnic minority background, and he very much promotes that side of things. And so he was, of course, a fantastic, one of the best players uh, in the world and certainly one of the best players in England, both for QPR and Newcastle. But it's great to see him in a, in a new leading role. It is. It is. We've had him on the show previously. He's just the, he's just the best, isn't he? <laughs> As I'm sure you know. But I'm surprised when Newcastle United came calling to you, Nick, about uh, this little takeover, that uh, you didn't just slam the phone down and say that was for taking Ferdinand off us. <laughs> no, well, you can't be like that because I'd never have any work if I if I took against <laughs> any club who's bought a QPR player or beat QPR. When when did you first um, hear off Newcastle uh, then and and um, get involved? And was it was it Mike Ashley's team that um, came calling, or was it Amanda Stavely's side? No, it, it was Mike's side because I was acting for the club and the seller. Um, and it was relatively early on. I, I can't remember when, but I think it was around, you know, sometime in the summer of 2020. Um, I think it was COVID all becomes one, doesn't it? But it yeah. was sometime around then that I first got involved. And, and from then on, it was sort of about a year and a half of, of course, I did other cases and other things in that time. But it was pretty full on for, for, for a year and a half. It was a very big case. Um, how different was the Newcastle United case to other or similar cases potentially in terms of the takeover? Because I think when when obviously the news broke about it being very close at, at the very very beginning in terms of I think it was March April twenty twenty where COVID really was taking over everybody's lives, it was kind of the one thing that Newcastle fans was grasping to: oh, Newcastle are going to be taken over, Newcastle are going to be taken over. And when obviously that didn't happen, the focus was on other things. So. When the case came to came to you, we think, well, is, is, is was it a typical case or was it different in any way? Well, it, there's no real typical case, but there were similarities with other cases. A lot of the cases I do against sports governing bodies, you know, against the Premier League or the Football League, um, they have some similarities. They're, they're often in these sort of highly confidential, private, arbitral proceedings, as they're called. But at the same time, there seems to be leaking all over the place in the press about what's going on. Um, and there's a, a real tension there because everybody's interested in it. The newspapers are writing about it, but you're not allowed to talk about it. And it's all behind closed doors. So that that's a, something I come across often and is, is always a little difficult to navigate. Um, and then the other thing is related to that, that the, the fan engagement in a case, because as lawyers, we don't unless you're doing a sort of high profile case about Brexit or something, we don't usually have that much public interest in our cases. But in in these types of cases, there, there's often a lot of interest, particularly from the supporters of the club involved. Um, so th there were some real similarities with a number of the other cases I've done. I think the two biggest differences here 
was the extent of the interest and engagement by Newcastle fans, which was beyond anything I've seen in any other case. And secondly, the, the determination and the resources of my ultimate clients to see the case through, which was probably greater and stronger than in most other cases I've had and was a very important factor. Did the, the reaction of the Newcastle fans surprise you in any way? Because as, as we mentioned before about the, 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 the silly baking bread thing, but in, in, in more general terms, did the, did the reaction take you aback? It, yeah, it, it did. Because as I say, I've, I've had similar cases. I've done cases, um, for, for example, uh, where a lot of fans got involved uh, for Celtic, Leeds, Derby, QPR and Sheffield Wednesday. And in at least three of those cases, the outcome of the cases um, directly affected relegation or promotion. And so there was enormous pressure on you to get the case right uh, and enormous interest by the supporters and lots of people talking about it on Twitter. So I've seen all of that before in other cases I've done, but there was nothing quite like uh, the Newcastle fans. I, I have to say, and I'm not just saying that to you guys, I say that to everyone, there's nothing quite like the level of fanaticism, involvement, attention to detail, and, he, you know, the humour, all of it, uh, of the Newcastle fans who followed it, but but also the um, the intelligence of many of them. I mean, it's sometimes quite striking to see some of the things that were said and written. I mean, some were mad conspiracy theories. You always get that. But some were right on the ball as well and very intelligent and articulate and very involved. Um, so, yes, that, that was a surprise, I think, to all of the team involved. How confident when you've when you seen the case and you've seen what you had to go with that we're going to win this case or Mike was going to win the case or Newcastle United were going to win this case? Well, um, to be honest with you, I'm never overconfident about any case except the most obvious case. And this was never the most obvious case. This was a difficult case on both sides. And I always think it's dangerous to be overconfident about cases because the one thing about litigation, when you've done a lot of it, you realise just how unpredictable it is, how many things can happen that are outside of your direct control that can affect the outcome. And so you should never be overconfident about a case. And I certainly wasn't overconfident about this. What I was confident about was our arguments and our legal team. We had a, a, a brilliant legal team. Um, I brought in one of my best friends who I was a pupil with, Shahid Fatima KC, um, who does a completely different type of work from me. And we, we were great friends as pupils 20 years ago in the same chambers. And we've never worked together for 20 years since then because we do different areas of law. But I thought she's just the right person for this case with some of the international law elements that came in. And, um, and so she came in and in, in many respects, she then led me, even though I brought her in and I'd do the more football side, she'd do more, the more international law side. But you know, it was a great working together with her. We had a great team, great solicitors, um, and that and having a, a very positive client who was both demanding and determined, but also listens well to advice, meant that I was very confident in our team. How was um, your relationship or just the, the relationships in general between yourself and Mike Ashley? Did, did, were you ever in communication with the consortium that, na that now own Newcastle United? Was there ever a moment where things were close, like one party was close to, to walking away? Well, I'm not going to talk about all of the things that went on behind closed doors yeah, for, yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, uh, what, what I can say is that um, uh, Mike was a pleasure to work with. I know he's not the most popular man in, in Newcastle with some people, but as, you know, just speaking for myself, as someone who was in the team, he was a pleasure to work for um, because I, I've worked for a lot of uh, those sort of people who are extremely wealthy, successful businessmen, and then they take over football clubs or Formula One teams or whatever. And there's a certain type of personality with some of them, and they can be difficult clients to have, I can tell you. They, they don't suffer fools gladly, but they also 
because they've been so successful in their own business, they often think they know everything. And of course, nobody can know everything. And so they, they're not always good at taking advice from an expert because they just demand things. Now, Mike wasn't like that, to be fair to him. He listened carefully to advice and he took it. And at the same time, he is a very shrewd, intelligent person who would have his own ideas, which would be creative and get us all thinking. So it was a pleasure to work with him. Uh, and it, it, he's also, it's, it's always nice to have a client who's actually got the resources to take on something like the Premier League. Because, you know, when I'm acting for clubs lower down in the league, fighting with the football league, the costs sometimes make it difficult and they can be bullied by, by the, the governing body. Mike's not a person who is easily bullied. So uh, all of that meant that that, that relationship was a, one I really enjoyed and was a good one. Um, I wasn't working for the consortium or for Amanda and Merhad, but we had a very good relationship. We often had, you know, meetings with them. It was all by internet in those days. And um, we got on very well. They obviously worked extremely hard on their side to get it through. And uh, it, was a, it was a very good working relationship all around. They, they were always charming and um, they've been kind enough to invite me up a couple of times since. And I hope they do again soon. We'll, we'll talk about those, uh, well, one of the first trips you, you came to Newcastle a little bit later, Nick, but you talk about the Premier League. How difficult was it to deal with the Premier League or are you just used to it now because of all the other cases that you may have? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of battle-weary. I mean, I, I remember uh, the, the team that we were working with, um, out of the whole two, it was a big team, you know, lots of solicitors, a couple of other barristers um, and so on. Um, none of them had really had the experience I had with working against sports governing bodies and the Premier League and the Football League often. And uh, they were very experienced lawyers in different areas of practice, but not that particular practice. So they would often be extremely surprised at, at things that happened. And, and for me, I was like, well, that's usual. That, that happens all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I am kind of used to uh, used to all of that. It's difficult being against a sports governing body sometimes because they have um, often in sport, and I'm talking generically now, I'm not just talking about this case, often in sport, they're used to being in control and in control of the process and the procedures. And they don't necessarily take very kindly to being challenged or even questioned. And if you do that too much or successfully, they can get defensive or aggressive and it can be difficult. And, and, you know, th this case was a difficult one. It was fought aggressively on both sides. There were reputations at stake on both sides. Um, a lot of emotion was there. Uh, and, you know, I think we all, everyone involved found it difficult at times and not always pleasant when it's that difficult. But, you know, I, I, because I'm involved in being against the regulators so often and in other sports, I often act for them in boxing and so on. Um, I've, I always try and remain as friendly and cooperative and able to compromise as possible because most of these, I always say, and I've said it throughout this dispute, most of these things are suitable and capable of being resolved sensibly and commercially to everybody's satisfaction. And in the end, that's what's happened in this case, in the, in, in the Newcastle case. It was resolved sensibly and satisfactory to everyone's satisfaction that was the best result for everyone for the premier league and for newcastle and for mike everyone came out a winner uh, as a result of of that cooperation and so if if you allow the difficulties and the antagonism to get on top of you you, you can never reach that point that's often the best point to reach when was the moment then that that you knew it was done, finished, and and kind of ready to be announced. How close was it to when it was actually announced at like quarter past five on the Thursday evening? Well, again, I probably can't say exactly, but, um, you know, you, 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 you had a feeling about what was happening for some time. But as with all of these sorts of things, it's never done until it's done because yeah. there's so many moving parts and there's so many things that can go wrong. It's never done until it's done. That's I think right. going back to 
Yeah, <laughs> I completely understand. And I think even this time last year, there were obviously the, the, the cat case, which was streamed, had 33,000 people watching yeah. at one point, Nick. And did that just surprise you in, in regards to the actual volume of people, the volume of interest? I know you talked about nothing surprises you. Newcastle United fans were, oh, I think you mentioned there, were just it was like incredible, really. But... 33,000 people. <laughs> what is that? I bet you've never seen that before. Oh, no. Well, it surprised everybody. It surprised all of us. As I say, I'm, you know, I'm good mates with Adam Lewis, who was the KC for the Premier League and, and on the other side in that case. I say I'm good mates. I've been good mates with Adam for many, many years. We've been against each other many times. It was difficult in this case for, for obvious reasons, but we've since had a few pints together. Um, and, you know, everyone was surprised at that because I think it was the the largest number of people that have ever uh, tuned in and, and watched uh, any of these types of proceedings remotely. And this, this was not even a substantive issue. This was a, a fight about something I'm very interested in, but it's an obscure area of law about where you get to, about what the proceedings should be and not actually the actual issue. And yet you had 33,000 people from all over the world listening to the whole thing. So that that was a surprise. I, I never knew it at the time. None of us knew at the time so many people were listening in. Um, you, you, we found out quite a bit after, which was probably a good thing because, you know, I was concentrating on the here. I had a bit part in that hearing, but I still had to concentrate because you never know when, when you're going to play the bit part. Um, so I was concentrating on the hearing, but I think in a break, I may have looked at my phone and seen the Twitter and seen a load of stuff about the tie I was wearing. And, you know, I had no idea <laughs> that I was pleased. I, I only looked at it then because otherwise I'd have been so self-conscious throughout the whole hearing. I wouldn't have been able to concentrate. Brilliant. I love that. Um, has your opinion of, of football changed since you were on the terraces watching Jerry Francis and, and now you, you, you're battling against governing bodies? Has your, has your opinions or has your love um, waned of, of the game or how are your feelings towards it? Well, it's, the, the game has changed a hell of a lot, hasn't it, in, in those times? I was just thinking about that this morning. When I used to stand on the loft behind the goal and watch the football on a Saturday. It was always on a Saturday in those days. When I used to do that, um, I remember you had your, your team on the back of the programme and every player was numbered 1 to 11. And those numbers reflected the position that they played. And there was only ever one substitute and he was number 12. So it was, you know, it's just a small thing, but that was very simple. Um the game has changed in so many ways since since then. What what was that, 40 years ago or so? Um, but however much we complain about um, the, the Premier League or English football or the distribution of money, I think we must remember that we've actually got the best football league in the world in England. We, we have, both in the Premier League and the English Football League, we've got the most competitive the most watched uh, financially and commercially, the most successful football leagues in the world with the Premier League and, and, and the competitiveness of the Football League. And there's not many, um, not many things England does these days in terms of culture or the economy where it can say it's the best in the world, to be, to be honest. Um, and, and this is in the world's biggest sport and the most popular sport in the world. England can say its leagues are the best in the world. And, and that's something we can be very proud of and we shouldn't take for granted. And so whatever the problems are, that there's a lot of great things about football in England. It needs to, we, we shouldn't be complacent. There needs to be a lot of reform and changes and so on. But we do have a fantastic product and a fantastic game. You talk about reforms and changes there. Is it, if you had a, like a magic wand, Nick, and you could make one change to football right now to make it even better, what would it be? Well, it's difficult, again, because I am, you know, my clients involve 
clubs who have very different interests about all these things and therefore I have to but I also do see the arguments on both sides of these these questions but I think that I think the biggest challenges at the moment are the question of distribution of money um, in order that there be a, a fairer and more competitive distribution and in particular, I think there are real problems with the parachute payments. I've often, I can see the arguments for them and I've often defended them. But where, where clubs in the championship are able to benefit from a parachute payment, but it also not be treated as debt for the purposes of financial fair play, but another club cannot benefit from it. And if the investor puts in the same amount of money, it becomes treated like a debt. It just makes it impossible for clubs who aren't in receipt of parachute monies to compete with those who are unless they break the rules. Uh, and so, you know, all of that needs to be looked at and reformed in some way. Uh, and then related to that is the whole question of regulation and the idea of an independent regulator, which has now been proposed by Tracy Crouch in the in the report which is a very good report. I think it's worth everyone reading. It's, it's, there are very good arguments for it. We were told it was going to happen. We're now less certain with this new government that they will push it through. But there's a lot of consensus behind it. There's also a lot of Premier League clubs who are against it as well. Um, and it may be that we don't get the independent regulator that's suggested, but some kind of compromise. But there does need to be a change. The, the, the idea that stakeholders regulate themselves which is how the premier league works and how uefa works but not by the way how fa works it's a slightly different model it's how the football league works the idea that stakeholders regulate themselves if you're a stakeholder i can see why you like that but the problem <laughs> is what happens when the majority of stakeholders want to stop one from competing against them they can then change the rules to make it impossible for that one to compete against them. And that make that, you know, that's no good. That's why you need an independent regulator. Now you might think I'm talking about Newcastle in, in that example. And and Newcastle have, have argued that, or, or Newcastle fans have argued that. But I've seen that in many other cases. I, I remember the the being involved for cases uh, for the clubs that were potentially facing relegation during the first season of COVID when you had a um, uh, when football ceased, do you remember when, when we stopped playing football? Yeah. And for a period of time, we didn't know whether football would come back or not. And various ideas came around about whether you should have a system where those with the fewest points ought to be relegated, even if the season doesn't complete. And I was involved in arguments about that at the time. Luckily, in the end, it was all resolved because we managed to finish the season. But one of the arguments there was, if you asked all of the clubs in the Premier League at the beginning of the season, to would you agree if the season finishes halfway through that those with the lowest points get relegated? I can tell you the majority would say no, have no relegation. But if you ask the majority of the clubs at the point where three face relegation and the others don't, you can guarantee that nearly all the others will vote, yes, those three should be relegated, because we won't be. And that is the problem, because the rule change would have been involved the majority of the clubs, or a 75% majority, voting in a certain way. And that's the problem with stakeholders regulating their own competition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Independent regulation has to come into force. Um, it just seems a no-brainer, but you've got the takeover done. Everyone's celebrating. I'm sure you would have seen the hashtag hashtag cans on Twitter and and the celebrations outside of St James's Park. Um, you're invited up for a match at Newcastle United. Was this your first trip up for a match at St James's? And um, just tell us about your day, your experience. It it was um, yes, it was. It was the first time at St James for a Newcastle match. I, I have to say, and it was a great experience. I mean, um, before I went up, there was people on Twitter saying, you know, you'll get mobbed in the street. And I was thinking, don't be silly. But you never actually know what it's going to be like. I have been to Newcastle a few times before for work. 
and I've always loved the city. It's a great city, and I love some of the architecture there. And so I thought I better get there early and walk around the city and take some photos. But um, I don't want to be mobbed, so because I don't know what might happen. So um, we had COVID still, so I could wear a mask and some sunglasses and a hat. And uh, I walked around, and then I thought, well, the, the, I'm being silly, you know. I'm, uh, no one's going to mob me, so I'll take it off and take photos, which I did. And within about a minute, some people came up and said, can we just shake your hand and da, 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 and all that. And then that happened for the rest of the day until I got to the stadium. Even people stopping and saying, can they take a selfie with me, which, you know, nobody has ever asked me. People don't ask barristers. So I did find that quite amusing um, and weird, but everyone was very friendly and polite and nice about it. There was no one being um, uh, unpleasant or pushy and they were all great. So it was fun. And then got to the stadium. And it was it was a Spurs match, I think. And I think... Uh, uh, Newcastle scored very early on and um, it was I think within the first minute or two if I recall but then the end result was not the greatest result but the atmosphere was fantastic it was I think that I, I also went having won a case for Celtic to Celtic um, when they had a, 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 a big day for their captain who had, had died an old captain and uh, the, those two atmospheres Celtic and Newcastle are the best atmospheres I've ever seen in any football stadium with everybody singing at the same time, the whole stadium. Um, so it was, a, it was a great atmosphere. And then afterwards, um, had a few drinks to, to say the least with quite a few people, including some good Newcastle fans who, who showed me around and ended up having dinner with David Ginola in the hotel, who was great. Nice. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic day. What was it like with Mr. Ginola himself? Because from a, a Newcastle fan who, unfortunately, regards what my, uh, Sam might say, was just a bit too young to remember Ginola. What, what was it like talking to him about football? It was great, actually, because he's far more... Um, and you, you often find this with footballers, so I should not be surprised. He's far more intelligent and engaged, not just about football, but about the stuff I do, you know, about the legal disputes than you would imagine, because he had his own legal dispute when, when he was a player. Um, so he's he's tremendously knowledgeable, interesting, and, you know, was was great to talk to. We had a fantastic conversation. Yeah, that day was just amazing. I mean, the result was almost secondary because it was just mm. like a, yeah, it was like a carnival outside the stadium um, before kickoff. It was amazing. Um, so... When will QPR be playing Newcastle United again in the Premier League? Well, who knows? Uh, as I say, the Championship's one of the most competitive leagues in the world. Anyone, nearly any one of the teams could get promoted. QPR uh, overperformed last year in comparison to their budget. And by results so far, they are overperforming this year in comparison to their spending. They can't spend much because of financial fair play rules cripples them. But they've got a good young side, a very good new young manager. And so anything's possible. Playoffs are possible. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's all up for grabs. So it will be an exciting season for us. And if we do get promoted, going up to St. James's Park and watching the match up there will be one of the highlights for me. So whatever the result will be, it will be fun. I'm sure you'll get a free drink every uh, at every pub you go to when you go to Newcastle. Hopefully, yeah. for, for your sake next season. But I think yeah, I think Newcastle fans will support QPR at least twice this season. They already have it to the Stadium of Light. When I think if I remember if I remember rightly, Nick, I'm sure you can go into more detail. But I'm sure your goalkeeper scored a last minute equaliser at the Stadium of Light. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm right. sure you were jumping for. I'm sure you were jumping for joy when that happened. That's right, with incredible. I think it was in, I can't remember now, I think it may have also been in extra time, but it was, but, you know, as you say, one of those where the goalie goes up because you've got nothing to lose. Um, but he scored a fantastic goal. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we all enjoyed that. And uh, I think it went down well up there, as at least on one side, uh, as it did in, in West London. <clears throat> it certainly did. It certainly did. Go on, Sam. But, you know, I, I'm glad Sunderland have come back up to the championship. And 
I hope this doesn't make me unpopular. Let's not get carried I away. Day, I hope one day they get back into the Premier League because as, as someone else said to me, I mean, they are a big, great club. I say great club by in terms of their, you know, history, reputation, fan base. And the one thing about having rivals, you know, we, as QPR fans, we were brought up to hate Chelsea, but we haven't played them in years now. When we do play them, we love it. You know, we absolutely love that that derby match. And I think it'd be good for both Newcastle and Sunderland to play in the same league. Obviously, Newcastle to win every time. But um, for, you to, for you to have them up and have that big derby, north-east north east derby. Yeah, there's, there's nothing quite like Derby Day in Newcastle. And, 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 and yeah, Nick, you are right in a way, you know, if, if Sunderland do go back up to the Premier League, it, it, it'll be great to have the derbies back because um, we've got some records to set straight, as, uh, as Johnny will testify, because we haven't won a derby in a while. But uh, the last one I went to, we won 5-1, and I was in the Gallagher end that day, and it was just one of the best days of my life. But, um, yeah, I suppose they are long overdue. And, and uh Johnny, what you you must be missing Derby days now in the city. Yeah, I, I, I think Nick's quite right. As much as we like to have that banter and camaraderie with the Sunderland fans, I think there's no day like Derby day. And I'm sure if QPR are playing Chelsea just to get that win over a rival, I'm sure I can remember QPR beating Chelsea um, at Stamford Bridge. I think Harry Redknapp was manager one uh, a few years ago. I remember that one. But um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I was at the one where... Um, we beat them, I think it's 1-0 on a penalty at home just after we got relegated. And it was the one where there was a John Terry, Anton Ferdinand yeah. racist allegation. And yes. it was, that was one of the most amazing matches I've been to because the atmosphere, that the QPR fans were so hostile to the travelling Chelsea players and fans I mean, it was the most hostile environment that those Chelsea players, I think, had ever been in. That Chelsea had, I think it was three players sent off uh, within the yeah. first half because they were wound up. So it shows what the fans <laughs> did. They were so wound up. And, and I think that contributed to the John Terry Anton Ferdinand incident and the penalty. And, and we won. And it was so, yeah, the, those, those sort of matches are unforgettable. Yeah, they certainly are. But um, I think all we can say is, Nick, is thank you very much for coming along and talking about everything in regards to Newcastle and a little bit on uh, Queen's Park Rangers as well. I'm sure every Newcastle fan will keep an eye out for QPR and I'm sure they'll send you a congratulations if you do get prime of this season. Good man, good man. Sam, where can everybody listen to this podcast? So, if you're watching on YouTube, the link is in the description for the audio podcast and also for Nick's book as well. As uh, Nick said earlier, it's an encyclopedia, so uh, delve in. Thanks, guys. Nick, it's been an, ap- no, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. So for myself, Jonathan Green, with my co-host Sam Mulner, and our guest Nick DeMarco KC, we'll see you all very soon. Newcastle Fans TV. The Greenwood and Mulliner Show is proudly sponsored by Casa San Lorenzo Gosforth, the best Italian cuisine in the northeast. Reserve a table today on 0191213 0399 or visit casasanlorenzo.co.uk.